0: The Advanced Tech Podcast, providing a spotlight for innovators and disruptors. If you like what you hear and would like to sponsor us, please reach out. Info at advancedtechpodcast.org. You can also find and sponsor us on Patreon. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Android, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating. You can also sponsor us using Bitcoin at advancedtechmedia.org slash sponsor. Welcome to the Advanced Tech Podcast. Joining us today is Tone Vase. Welcome, Tone.
1: Hi, guys. Thank you for having me on.
0: So for our listeners that don't know you, I'd love to get a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. I started out in the traditional finance world. My first job was at Bear Stearns in early 2007. Uh, So just before Bear Stearns collapsed in the financial crisis, transitioned over to JP Morgan, worked at a couple of other companies on Wall Street, Mostly in the risk analysis realm, we were building risk models. Uh, Trading was something I learned even before I got that job. And I learned technical analysis, fell in love with it, but I didn't really have the money to do anything. You know, it's hard becoming a trader, you know, trading your own money. And I always wanted to like leave that job and become a trader, which I finally did in 2015. But that had already been after I discovered Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and I really enjoyed that world as well. Started writing articles, appearing on YouTube shows, uh, speaking at conferences, and uh, my trading full-time only lasted maybe a year, year and a half, uh, because now I'm just too busy traveling the world, speaking at conferences, running my YouTube channel with almost daily videos. It's just Tone Vase on YouTube. And the trading will have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, it's not going anywhere. And I've been teaching workshops. I was a teacher before I got to Wall Street. So I really enjoy teaching by about approximately twice a month. I teach a workshop, teaching people how to be traders, teaching chart reading and technical analysis. And that's another thing that I cover quite often on my YouTube channel that's becoming more popular these days, which is great.
0: Excellent. So... Tell us, how did you get into Bitcoin?
1: Well, I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011 by watching the Kaiser Report and similar types of shows, uh, like these alternative finance shows. I really found an interesting at the time because WikiLeaks had just gotten banned from all means of financing to Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. And Bitcoin was there to basically save WikiLeaks because people were able to donate with WikiLeaks. And it was a censorship-resistant value transfer property that didn't exist. However, that wasn't enough to get me uh, running around New York City trying to find and buy some Bitcoin. Uh, What did that were the Cyprus events of 2013 when the government decided to just confiscate money out of people's bank accounts. And that's when a second property of Bitcoin really resonated with me. And that's the fact that Bitcoin is unconfiscatable. And it's interesting that the word unconfiscatable is not in the dictionary. Confiscatable is because everything we've ever owned in our lifetime, in our history, has always been confiscatable. And Bitcoin is the first asset that is unconfiscatable if you're properly protecting your own Bitcoin. And, uh, let's see if we can get that word into the dictionary. Because when I realized that even recently, I'm like, you know what? That's a word. That's Bitcoin. It's unconfiscatable. So I own the domain unconfiscatable.com, the Twitter handle. And that's what I named my very first conference coming up in January. It's unconfiscatable.
0: That's awesome. I think that a lot of people that are into Bitcoin are into it, not just for the, the price, but really that it changes the conversation about what is money and what is value.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so those two properties are absolutely critical. And they're the properties that actually give Bitcoin its value, in my opinion. Now, there is a third property, and this is its economic model. Now, Satoshi could have selected any economic model he wanted. The thing is, once he selected that economic model, because of the first two properties of it being unconfiscatable and censorship resistant, whichever economic model he chose, it's basically you can't change that economic model. Because if you can change the economic model, you can change any other property. So the economic model he chose was hard money gold style economic model where there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. In fact, it's technically harder monetary policy than gold because gold can be mined forever. So gold is infinitely inflatable. It's just you get less and less gold every year compared to how much gold there is in the world. In Saif book, uh, Saif Adin Amusa's book, The Bitcoin Standard, he describes that as the stock-to-flow ratio. Which is a book I strongly recommend to your listeners to read, uh, "The Bitcoin Standard" by Seifadin. He chose the gold-style economic model, uh, which is what uh, the world had, uh, you know, 150 years ago or so, and that also adds value to Bitcoin because it's finite and it's very difficult to create new Bitcoin. And uh, we know how many Bitcoin there are going to be and approximately when they're going to be created. So economists can debate whether that kind of monetary policy is better or worse than our current you know, monetarist or Keynesian policies. But that's debatable. But the fact that it's not changeable is very important. And that gives Bitcoin confidence as potential global money in the future.
0: Excellent. So that leads nicely into our next question. One of the user groups that we belong to had a question for you. Does Bitcoin have the means necessary to become universal
1: money? Today, probably not. In about three to five years, I believe that it could. So those three properties have to stay critical to Bitcoin. Two additional properties, or well, technically three additional properties, are not ideal at the moment, but there are technological roadmaps that are making them a lot more efficient. So now we're talking how fast Bitcoin transacts how cheap Bitcoin transacts and how much does it cost to transact in Bitcoin. So in November, December of 2017, we saw that Bitcoin wasn't very fast and it wasn't very cheap. And we know that Bitcoin isn't very private. If you're doing a lot of illegal activity with Bitcoin, if you're doing a lot of illicit transactions, it's not that hard for the government to find you. They'll have to do some work, they have to understand some new technology, But Bitcoin isn't the most private uh, means of payment there is. All three of these things are getting significantly better a lot faster. There hasn't really been that much progress yet on making Bitcoin more private. But probably by middle of next year, Bitcoin transactions should be significantly more private. Also, as of uh, about six to nine months ago, more and more people are using the latest upgrade to the Bitcoin code known as segregated witness that has made Bitcoin a lot more scalable. It has made Bitcoin a lot cheaper. Uh, Second layer scaling solutions like Lightning are around the corner. Maybe in six months, six to nine months, they will be commercially ready where you can start making micropayments in Bitcoin. Uh, The on-chain transactions will always be about seven transactions a second. But you can make infinitely many transactions above that layer, and they settle to that layer in giant batches. And those transactions can be almost instant, and they can be almost free, and they can be way more private than the current transactions on the protocol itself. So once technology is ready with those three things, Bitcoin has a chance to be this global money that is government neutral, politically neutral. No government controls it. And no one controls its monetary policy. And it has a chance. But today, if mass adoption of Bitcoin comes, uh, the system is going to get a little clogged because it's just not technologically ready. It's like trying to launch Netflix in the mid-90s. You just don't have the bandwidth yet. Technology underlying the Internet needed to get better for something like Netflix to come along. Uh, same thing with Bitcoin. And once that happens, uh, there are still two additional properties that are going to be challenging, and they're not that easy to solve because they may not be solvable. One of them is Bitcoin is pretty volatile of all the currencies in the world. uh, Not all, I mean, not counting Venezuela or recently Turkish lira or Argentinian peso. uh, They've been a little more volatile lately. But in general, Bitcoin is way more volatile than the dollar, the euro, Canadian, Australian dollars, the British pound. So volatility is there. So some people will find it challenging to use Bitcoin as a unit of account on a day-to-day basis when the price fluctuates so much. So Bitcoin would need to be a lot more valuable for larger and larger transactions to be, to be more stable. Like right now, if you're buying a cup of coffee with Bitcoin, it doesn't matter if the price of Bitcoin drops by $500 or $1,000 in a day if you're doing a $2 transaction. But if you're about to buy your car, That's a big deal. Uh, So volatility should lower over time, and there's nothing can be really done about that. Uh, And the other property is the security of your Bitcoin. That is very, very challenging, and uh, people are trying to find more user-friendly ways for people to be in control of their own Bitcoin and not give them to a Bitcoin bank to have control of, because then you're losing those critical properties of censorship resistance and unconfiscatability if you let somebody else hold them for you. But if you're holding them yourself, you can lose them, you can forget your password, and then you lost all your money. So the security of your Bitcoin, or you can be hacked, is very challenging.
0: Yeah, that's very fair. I know that there's a common phrase, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Of course, I think users, they're used to things just working. So for people that are technically inclined and used to multiple layers of security, that's relatively straightforward. But I think for the average user who's used to just clicking remember for password on their online banking system, uh, even remembering just a short passphrase might be a challenge.
1: It's actually interesting that you said users are used to things just working uh, because Bitcoin itself, the protocol, doesn't go down. It's been up 99.99% of the time. And in the last probably four years, it hasn't had a single second of downtime. And people take that for granted because even like YouTube goes down. Google owns YouTube and it speaks something to the quality of the developers underlying the protocol of Bitcoin that it just doesn't go down. Your applications might, but Bitcoin transactions themselves, there is never any downtime.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I think more people should know about. It's one of its more unique properties. It's a really, really well engineered system. And the fact that if there is a bug or if there is anything that is an issue, it's solved right away and propagated throughout the network pretty quickly. I think more people should be looking to Bitcoin as far as standard of code quality and maintenance. So one of the things that we wanted to ask you about that kind of everybody asked you about and is a little bit controversial is the price of Bitcoin. We touched on it a little bit, but where do you see it going over the
1: next two years? Yeah, the Bitcoin community has not been very happy with me over the last six months uh, because as a technical analyst, as a, I guess, responsible YouTuber, I have to be honest with my followers or all followers. And I recognized in the middle of January that Bitcoin could be in trouble from a price perspective. And it's it almost pains me to say that Bitcoin is in trouble from a price perspective because in 2017 the price of Bitcoin went from 1000 to 20000. And I was very nervous and throwing caution flags left and right. When Bitcoin crossed seven and a half thousand dollars in November, because I felt that now it's becoming unreasonably high in price. And at the time, people were like upset saying, why are you down on Bitcoin? It's going up. It's going to a billion dollars per Bitcoin. Uh, Good times will never end. Well, the good times ended. And now people are a little upset that I continue to predict lower and lower prices of Bitcoin. And this is what happens because I have trading experience. And when things go up unreasonably high, they tend to come down unreasonably low because they shouldn't have been that high to begin with and they overcorrect. So by going above 7500 last year, I think we're going to overshoot to the downside. So what does that mean? I personally think that a fair valuation for Bitcoin today is approximately $5,000. And I've been calling for a fall in the price of Bitcoin to at least $5,000. But because we went above 5000 last year, and especially above $7,500 last year, I feel we are probably going to overcorrect below $5,000 before this bear market is said and done. Now, we're actually falling a lot slower than I expected. I thought we would hit 5000 by July. But so far, the low has only been fifty-seven fifty. dollars uh, We just dropped uh, a few hundred dollars the other day. And um, October, probably later this month, I can see my $5,000 target eventually get hit. And after that, I'll look at the charts again, look at the ecosystem again, and see if, uh, how confident I am in lower targets. I hope that's it. I hope 5000 is the low. We can hang out there for like maybe four to five months. At 5,000, everything stabilizes. And then we start to go back up. If not, there could be a little more pain.
0: I remember seeing your presentation at Baltic Honey Badger a few weeks ago. And what I'd like to get is your perspective on technical analysis and trading indicators in Bitcoin and how it differs from other markets uh, if it does.
1: The only thing that I really see different about Bitcoin from other markets is that it moves really, really quickly. So for example, a bear market in gold from 1980 to 2002, well, that lasted over 20 years. Now, I believe that all bear and bull markets are faster today because of technology. So the current bear market in gold is not going to last another 20 years. I think that one will be shorter because I think information processes faster, you can get your things faster. So everything moves faster. People demand things faster. So in general, all markets move up and down faster as societies progress. But Bitcoin takes that to another level. So what may take an asset 30 years to have two or three bull and bear markets. Bitcoin can do it in three to four years. So I have noticed that. But as far as the fear and greed of people by FOMOing in and getting scared and dumping it down, those emotions are all the same. The price movements are the same. They just happen a lot faster. And because of Bitcoin's hardness property that there's only a finite number of Bitcoin that continues to shrink because people lose their Bitcoin, it has huge upwards bias. And as more and more governments print money, as more and more governments try to make money illegal by eliminating cash, I think Bitcoin does have huge upward bias, but because it's so fast reacting, its uh, crashes in bear markets are also very, very quick. So by middle of next year, I am expecting a new bull market in Bitcoin, but... I'm doing my best to predict how at what price that will happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you're getting into some really awesome technical side of Bitcoin. And maybe you could relate it to how we have different exchanges evolving to include Bitcoin. I've done some CBOE option chain arbitrage and things like that do you see you know currently people are speculating about doing arbitrage across different places where you can buy bitcoin in different countries what have you seen that's uh, that was an opportunity that was really arbitraged by the public um and also some of the illiquid aspects of it where you see you know the typical bart simpson patterns <laughs> you know the hair kind of graph that Bitcoin kind of makes the price spikes up and then goes up and down in small bursts along a couple of weeks and then spikes back down, making the Bart Simpson haircut pattern. (laughs) Maybe you can get into some of those interesting things about uh, Bitcoin specifically when it comes to trading.
1: Sure. So I believe you mean futures on CBOE, not options, but I understand how that's confusing because CBOE is traditionally an options exchange. I did not even know they had futures. Until they pre-announced that they're going to launch their futures before the CME futures because in all of my years of futures trading experience, I've only traded the CME futures because they're the most liquid. There was a lot of hype over the futures from CBOE and CME and coincidentally, the top at Bitcoin coincided with the launch of those futures and for some reason, a lot of traders were blaming Wall Street and the futures for causing the drop and the end of the bull market in the price of Bitcoin, though I will say most people still can't admit that the bull market is over, at least for the short term. So it was mostly hype. The reason why the price of Bitcoin went up so much into the the futures launch was because people were believing that when Wall Street comes in, it's going to do something good to Bitcoin. And when the futures showed up, they had no volume, nobody was using them, and people just realized, hey, this is not a big deal at all. And those futures on both CME and CBOE, they're cash-settled futures. I don't see them affecting the price of Bitcoin at all. It's like the futures on the S&P 500. They have no price discovery mechanism, only outside of trading hours, and even then, it's debatable. So... The interesting thing is, in the world of Bitcoin, you have exchanges and brokers in one. In the real world of stock trading, your exchange, let's say, is the NASDAQ, and the NASDAQ holds Amazon stock. And then you buy that stock through ETrade or Scott Trade or Interactive Brokers, Fidelity, whichever you like. And they're just brokers, they're not exchanges. And liquidity is centralized in one entity in the traditional markets. But in the Bitcoin world, liquidity is spread out across multiple brokers which are acting as exchanges. So it's easy to just crash the price on one of the brokers. It's also the price between exchanges gets misaligned, but usually that's for a reason. At the moment, the price on Bitfinex is $100 higher than the price on Bitstamp. You can arbitrage that, but you're taking a risk. The reason why the price on Bitfinex is higher is because right now they have banking issues, so they're not doing wires. It's also been suspected that Bitfinex, you know, may not be very liquid, or that's the uh, that's a top ten exchange that's probably most likely to go down. Uh, whether the government's going to show up and do something bad, or they're going to get hacked for the third time, there is lots of risks. When you try to arbitrage between multiple exchanges, I personally don't like trading Bitcoin because I don't like taking on those risks. I like to hold down to my own Bitcoin. Uh, I would consider trading Bitcoin in the CME futures market. I've just been a little too busy for that, Uh, but I probably would do that if the liquidity is a little higher. And um, if options ever come around, because I am a very experienced options trader, uh, I might do that as well. Again, time permitting. But as far as like the Bart Simpson patterns, I've never heard of that pattern until a couple of years ago in the crypto space. Didn't even know it existed. I mean, again, that happens because Bitcoin, while it may have enough liquidity out there across all of the exchanges combined, that liquidity needs to be somehow pooled. But right now, that liquidity is spread out. So all you have to do is execute a very large trade on a single exchange And watch all the dominoes fall because people in other exchanges panic or buy-in because they think that one exchange knows what they're doing. And because of that, it doesn't take a lot of money to move the price of Bitcoin. Is that manipulation? I don't think so. Unless the mover of the price of Bitcoin has some kind of insider advantage. Like a market maker, for example, like a bookie in sports betting, should not be betting on the games. They should be a market maker, they should be a bookie. They're trying to hedge both sides of the bet so they can profit from a little percentage, and the more neutral they are, the safer it is for them. But if a market maker all of a sudden has insider information from one exchange, goes and places a large bet on another exchange to move the market, that could be manipulation, and uh, there's no oversight to see what's going on. But I hate it when people blame manipulation just because some guy with more money than you placed a large order or sold a large order and moved the market. Because Bitcoin isn't, you know, that big of a market. It just needs more time. And after that, when there's more value on chain, it'll be fine.
2: Great. That's an excellent explanation. What would you suggest for people that um, on, over the last year have really gotten into following crypto and especially as an investment vehicle uh, for them to realize what some of those differences are in terms of getting into trading. Uh, certainly uh, secondary exchanges and almost like you mentioned gambling and betting. So BitMEX comes to mind where you can basically gamble against other people in a neutral betting market. Any kind of advice for people?
1: Well, my biggest advice for people is for them to figure out, Are they a trader or are they an investor? If they're an investor, you do your research. Hopefully, you come to the same conclusion I have years and years ago that Bitcoin is the only investment-grade asset in the entire crypto space. Everything else is not investment-grade. You can go and trade your Ethereum or any other crypto to earn more Bitcoin and then hold on to that Bitcoin. But holding on to Ethereum for longer than the length of your swing trade is dangerous because I think it has a high probability of going to zero any day, which is something I believe Bitcoin does not have. So if you're an investor, figure out what you're going to hold and hold it for as long as you can. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm too busy to be a trader. So I'm an investor. So what does that mean? That means I'm holding on to my Bitcoin through the bear market. I don't mind. My time horizon is five years out, 10 years out. I'm okay with that. If you're going to be a trader, educate. Educate, learn, study. I've been a trader for almost 15 years. And whenever I get an opportunity to learn, I still do. Uh, It's almost like being a race car driver. You have to learn and slowly get into that profession or you're going to die. Uh, Same thing financially. If you think it's easy being a trader, you're going to lose all your money. You're going to create financial suicide. So if you're going to be a trader, I believe you have to learn technical analysis. I believe that the only traders that can trade short term or intermediate term with fundamental analysis are large hedge funds that have a research desk, that have a dozen people. One person researches a single stock for weeks to know everything about that company, down to what the CEO eats every morning. And then they can make the proper bet as to what that company might do over the intermediate term. But if you're going to trade and hold your positions for no longer than a month or two, I think technical analysis is your only tool. And if you don't properly learn technical analysis, This is why 90% of traders lose 90% of their money, and most of them fairly quickly. So my biggest advice, you don't have to pay for this education. You can learn it for free. Plenty of good channels out there. Um, I don't really have many to recommend because everybody's different. On my website, tonebase.com, in the educational section, I have a tutorial with dozens of links that you can learn yourself for free on how to trade. This is why I started doing the workshops, uh, because I realized that so many people in the world of crypto are trading with no experience. Uh, the first question I ask in my workshop, uh, and it's usually about 20 people, uh, please raise your hand if you've traded anything before the world of crypto came into your life. And I would say about 20 to 30 percent of the hands go up. So that means the majority of people became traders because of crypto and how did they learn? I learned to trade from professional traders around 2002 to 2003. So I learned to trade from the survivors of the dot-com crash. And, but who's teaching you? So um, if you don't have the right education on how to properly read charts, uh, you're going to be in a lot of trouble very quickly. So that's the best advice I can give.
2: All right. What are some of your uh, go-to first lessons in charting? I'm interested personally about it because I've been doing that for years as well. Obviously, not as a profession like you, but uh, certainly have educated myself to that. And so, you know, the various uh, indicators, uh, MACD, and all those things versus candlesticks, etc. What are your opinions on some of those trade industry tools?
1: Sure. So I categorize my importance in charting, my most important thing is candlesticks. It's the shape of the candlestick. I'm very big on shooting stars, hammers, and dojis. I need those reversal candles to try and time changes in trend, so the size and shape of the candlestick itself is very critical to me, number one thing. The next thing most important to me is chart patterns. The ascending and descending triangles are my absolute, uh, it's been my bread and butter. I strongly believe that ascending and descending triangles have a 70% probability of moving in the direction that they're predicting. Now, they are very opposite trading than candlesticks because candlesticks are reversal patterns and chart patterns are continuation patterns. Right now in Bitcoin, we have a massive descending triangle that has been forming since February. Between February and we're now in October, we have a massive descending triangle that is pointing to a target of $3,000. So there is a 70% probability in my mind that imminently we will drop below 6000 The target of the triangle is recommending that we fall all the way to 3000 do so I think we will fall to 3,000 with a 70% probability? Probably not. There's a 70% probability of a breakdown. The probability that it's going to hit the expected target is not 100%. So you have to drop from that. So I believe that there's a 70% chance that we drop below 6,000 and go to 5,000. What is my probability that we're going to go all the way to 3,000? I'll probably give that over a 50% chance, but not as high as 70 And I use these in my trading all the time. I love the ascending and descending triangle. The next most important thing to me, and I believe that I am responsible for, if anyone in crypto is using the Tom DeMarc TD sequential indicator, I believe that's probably my influence uh, because I learned that indicator a long time ago on Wall Street and I've traded it. And I think it's one of the most accurate indicators there is, but no trading software has it because it's proprietary under a trademark license. So the only way to really use that indicator was to have access to the Bloomberg terminal. And that's $3,000 a month on a multi-year contract. So no one really uses it. That's why a lot of the at-home traders, if you're not a professional, if you're not at a hedge fund that specializes in technical analysis, you probably never even heard of TD Sequential. And I believe it's one of the best indicators there is. But it's a time-based indicator. It's not a price-based indicator. It tells you on what day uh, your prices are probably going to reverse or on what day your prices might accelerate and how many days they're going to keep trending in the same direction. So you have to combine your price knowledge with this indicator that's a time-based tool. And because it's the only time-based tool we have, uh, because lots of traders, all they focus on is price. They don't understand the concept of time. When the bear market started, I gave my most optimistic bearish target of 5,000. I gave my most pessimistic bearish target of 1,300. And there are some targets in between, but those were the most optimistic and pessimistic bear market targets. I also gave the most optimistic and the most pessimistic bear market time targets. And a lot of people don't understand the concept of time. And if you've never traded options, uh, you don't understand the concept of time. And the reason why 90% of traders are scared of options, and 90, I say 98% of traders lose their money in trading options, is because not only do you have to get the price right, you also have to get the time right. You have to be a much better trader in order to attempt to get both of those right. So I gave my time targets. I expected the bear market to last at least until late October, early November. And look at us, we're already in mid-October, so my most optimistic time target is going to get hit. And once we hit 5,000, my most optimistic price target is going to get hit. My most pessimistic time target is going all the way out to August, September of next year. And the sequential indicator is a great tool in order to learn to respect and understand the time element of trading. After that, It's support and resistance lines, prior highs and lows, moving averages, Fibonacci's, trend lines, uh, anything that is support resistance. And my final level is the oscillators, MACD, RSI, CMF. um, I can name a bunch more. Those are my top three. That's just something I use for confirmation. I don't really see the oscillators as the main reasons to be in or out of a trade.
2: Yeah, it's amazing to see how many people, because they, they see those patterns as being something, um, the oscillator or indicators to be easily viewable, they end up uh, using those as their
1: primary indicators <laughs> instead. <laughs> so, And uh, notice how I didn't say the word volume at any point during that. And a lot of other traders get like very irritated when I say volume doesn't really matter. It matters slightly. And volume is so tricky. I don't look at order books, I look at prices. Order books lie to you. A smart trader will show you the opposite of what they're going to do. But assuming that it's the opposite of what they're going to do is not a good bet either. Volume needs to be consistent with what you expect. The only time I worry is when I see price patterns and the volumes look weird. And when they look weird, it makes me nervous But now I got to figure out why they're weird. And um, I try to ignore volume as much as I can because if you go down that rabbit hole, you could get tricked in a hurry, even as an experienced trader. So I just caution people on volume. I really need to do big courses on volume. I understand volume. And in my experience, I found it not all that helpful, but it's, it's a long discussion on volume. I also hate it the way... Volume is perceived in that, hey, you have a green candlestick, therefore your volume is green. But what if it's a giant shooting star candle? That's a negative volume to me, not positive. So uh, there's so much there in the volume space. I tell people, unless you're going to spend a month nothing but studying volume full time, uh, you're almost better off pretending it's not even there. I turn it off on my charts most of the time.
2: That's great. Uh, Maybe you can also, uh, since we're on the subject and you mentioned uh, order books, there's certainly, uh, especially in the last uh, year and six months, maybe uh, over a year, a lot of uh, manipulation within those markets in crypto, uh, even Bitcoin and uh, other things where we have had people being accused of making uh, giant cell walls and uh, certainly some attempts at manipulating some of these uh, order books by... And either Bitcoin Cash proponents or other things. Any insight into cell walls and, and attempts at manipulating the market?
1: I, I don't see giant cell walls as manipulating the market. I just see that as a big trader. The word manipulation gets misused so much, and it really bothers me. You know, a guy with a huge sum of money sitting down at the poker table and bullying people around is not manipulating the poker game. He just has more money than you.
2: I, I just I was thinking about the specific instances of bets being put on both sides to where I think on the exchanges, on regular exchanges, those would not be legal. There would be some investigations. Is there any truth to that, first of all? And if so, uh, what basis is that on?
1: Yeah. I mean, most exchanges will not let you put a giant buy and a giant sell on the same stock at the same time. That practice was deemed illegal. But you're the one taking a risk. If you put a huge wall on a buy side and a sell side, what's stopping a bigger player filling your one side and then crushing you on the other side? So they're taking on a risk. If you're an insider, if you're, let's say, the CTO of an exchange and you know the order book and you can hit a button and say, oh, sorry, we had a slight glitch while you're placing your huge bets, then yeah, you should be nailed for manipulation. But if you have no insider knowledge and you're placing those big bets, you're taking the risk and I don't have a problem with that.
0: I think it's good that you mentioned just because somebody has more money doesn't mean it's manipulation. I think that's a very fair point. And because people have lost large sums of money, they they tend to forget that. And they tend to forget the risk that is involved in trading. General rule is you don't trade unless you can lose it all. Um, of course, people don't, but uh, then they get you know their nose pretty out of joint when things go really wrong. So it's good to see people that have experience in the field call that out, and I think that's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, and it, it really like I've, I've been in the space for a while, and I've been uh, you know a gold bug for a very short amount of time. And after you see what's going on. Like So a lot of people in the gold bug community, even in the crypto community, they're constantly complaining that the stock market is manipulated to the upside, but gold and Bitcoin are manipulated to the downside. And I've been a big critic of those statements for years and years now because they bother me. Uh, Why? Like, it makes no sense. If you're so upset that the stock market has been manipulated to the upside for 100 years, why do you keep shorting the market and losing money then? And uh, if you're so upset that gold is being manipulated to the downside, why do you keep buying gold and then upset that it's fallen in value? So it just makes no sense to me. And uh, they, they always come up with like, oh, you see, uh, Deutsche Bank just paid a billion-dollar fine for manipulating gold prices down for five years. And then you look into that, yeah, they manipulated by five cents Every day at noon and during that five-year stretch, the average price of gold actually went up. They were just announcing a slightly lower price of gold and profiting five cents at the London close time because they had the power to announce a gold price and they were just skimming pennies. That's not exactly the suppression of gold price. That's just, you know, a player wanting to take advantage of a five-cent trade. Now, granted, when you have thousands of futures contracts, five cents makes a difference. And over the five-year span, you can make billions of dollars. But you're not suppressing the price of gold. They could have done it in the opposite direction. Like, it really didn't matter. So I don't believe in that nonsense. Anybody can trade gold. I can make it short gold if I like from my living room. So I don't don't like that. Uh, People just, you know, blame manipulation for when their, you know, positions go horribly wrong. Uh, Now, there are occasional issues. But again, without regulation, without oversight of the exchanges, nobody knows anything. They're just screaming manipulation when their bets go bad. When the manipulation helps them make money, they don't say anything. So you get this one-sided visceral reaction all the time. So
0: Tone, I'd like to talk a little bit about your YouTube channel, both Trading Bitcoin and Bitcoin Morning Brief, uh, some of your recent episodes, some highlights, things that you're looking forward to as well, in upcoming episodes. If you'd like to talk about that,
1: sure. I'm starting to get the feeling I'm doing too much, and uh, lately my travel schedule really picked up with speaking at conferences. I just like was taking on more and more podcasts. Um, so the Trading Bitcoin is basically my show where I talk prices of Bitcoin. Uh, Initially, it was Bitcoin and traditional markets. Then I tried to separate Bitcoin from traditional markets, to separate videos, but it was just becoming too much because there are so many traditional markets. And uh, I also do a lot of live Q&A. All my videos are live and I try to engage with my live viewers. Uh, The Morning Briefs is a news show because um, if I don't do the morning brief, I don't really know what's going on because I don't have time to read the news. So we have a morning show where... My lovely host, Leah Wald, sources the stories for us, and uh, she finds the top three to four stories every day. And uh, even though we haven't done the show in a couple of weeks because of all of our travel schedules, but the show's coming back, and we cover the news and what it means for the general market of crypto economically, financially, legally. I recently started a legal show called the Bitcoin Law Review, which is actually my favorite show. Uh, used to be once a week, again, we skipped a few weeks, it's going to come back, where I get together with maybe four to five lawyers in the space, and we talk about all of the law-related issues and how that affects the space. I also have a series called On the Record, where I interview people or I collaborate with some people. And one of my original podcasts that I'm trying to bring back is called Crypto Scam, where me and an expert sit down and we critically analyze another token or a project in the crypto space. So I really like the term crypto scam. I was so happy I was able to get the domain and I need to do more with that. We've had episodes about Ripple and Dash and Augur and multiple episodes on Ethereum where we explain to the users why we really don't like these projects and why they're not sustainable and why they're terrible investments.
0: I think that you're definitely doing the crypto world a service. I've only been involved in the space for just over a year, and you can fall prey to a lot of the the marketing campaigns, uh, especially if you don't understand how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies actually work. It's really interesting to see the promises versus uh, what actually ends up being built, especially on the heels of the ICO downfall. It's interesting to see the companies that are still building in the space and what products and platforms they're using. So it's encouraging to see companies such as Blockstream doing some really interesting things with scaling solutions such as Liquid, which I know they just announced. And then also with Lightning, who have been operational for quite a while. But now, as you mentioned earlier, they're moving to a more commercial market. So yeah, it's, it's encouraging to see how the space is changing. And you're actually seeing people build things. There's a great cartoon, I think, on Twitter where you've got a, an ICO at the very beginning and it's you know, it's beautifully drawn horse, and at the end it's basically a, a kid's crayon <laughs> drawing of, of what it actually looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty much what happens. I just got to put a slight correction there. Uh, the Liquid project from Blockstream is more of a security and liquidity solution for Bitcoin to be moved around. SegWit, which also came out, uh, lots of programmers from Blockstream did code, The SegWit upgrade, and that was a scalability solution. But yes, I'm a big fan of the company. I'm actually wearing their sweatshirt right now with their logo, but we're only on audio. I got a shirt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So was wearing the uh, Don't Trust Verify shirt uh, earlier at the gym.
1: Yes, that's a a great shirt. That's a great shirt.
0: Cool. Um, So we're both at Baltic Honey Badger, and you had some great talks and panels that you appeared on. What were some of your highlights for this particular conference
1: this past year? Yeah, I have to say that's probably the only conference where I was sitting there listening to presentations. And I really enjoyed them. Uh, So I really, really liked that conference. It uh, inspired me to really get my conference off the ground because it's going to be very similar in style and concept. And I'm going to try and even get similar speakers. because I think it's very important for these Bitcoin conferences to come back because the world has been infiltrated by these scammy ICOs, and these conferences are just educating people in the opposite of what they need to understand. And um, I didn't really have a single highlight other than there were some speakers there that I've never heard before, uh, like Eric Voskel and Nick Carter, uh, and it was really good to, uh, to hear their presentations. I really enjoyed them. It was uh, very interesting having Matt Carello there, who literally didn't sleep for three days prior trying to fix that bug that was in the Bitcoin source code that he kind of, sort of was responsible for creating years ago, but nobody knew it existed. Uh, So he was also mostly responsible for fixing it. Uh, So it was good the way he handled that, the way he handled that pressure. I respect Matt Carello a lot. Uh, It was good seeing him being a sport and talking about it. It was was good. It was a really good mix of people. Uh, So I really, really enjoyed it. Probably... Uh, My best, my favorite conference of the year so far.
0: Yeah, it was definitely mine as well. And I appreciated the focus on engineering. And Nick's presentation was fantastic, as was Bruce Fenton's. His was really good.
1: Yeah, uh, Bruce Fenton's as well. It it was a very good presentation. Uh, Bruce Fenton and I have definitely argued over certain things. Bruce Fenton was on my law show. My law show usually doesn't have guests because I don't like to... You know, if I like a person as a person, I don't want him on my show because I don't want to incriminate him by making him say something that's going to get him in legal trouble. Uh, And Bruce Fenton was very adamant about coming on our law show uh, because we were debating whether he was in violation of the SEC security laws. And me and a few lawyers made the case that he was and uh, he still disagrees. Uh, so, I'm a little nervous for Bruce Fenton. You know, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been my motto in the world of Bitcoin. Uh, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. So, uh, to this day, since my first day in Bitcoin, I have never used Bitcoin in connection with my legal name because I plan for the worst. I don't know if the US government criminalizes Bitcoin the way they criminalized gold in the thirties? Are they going to criminalize Bitcoin the way they criminalized marijuana in the sixties and seventies? And now they realized, Hey, uh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, what if they, the way they criminalized alcohol in what, 1919. And then, uh, it took what, 20 years for them to remove that law. Like you don't know what the governments are going to do. Uh, so, I still think they're going to – they're a little hostile towards Bitcoin and I don't want to take my chances. I like Bitcoin. I use it as a store of value. I use it as a medium of exchange when it's peer-to-peer. But am I going to you know, pay my taxes in Bitcoin and, and like, no, uh, I'm not going to do that. Like I pay my taxes in Bitcoin. I pay my taxes on the Bitcoin by claiming it as additional cash income, which is all they need to know. They just need to know how much money I made and whether that money was made legally. So as long as Bitcoin is legal, as long as I can charge Bitcoin for my workshops, I declared, hey, people paid me in X amount of dollars. They could have paid me in carrots. They could have paid me in chickens. They could have paid me in gold coins. Uh, You take the dollar value of whatever people paying you in and you say, that's how much money I made. It's none of their business what they actually handed me, whether it was U.S. dollars, a check, a bank transfer, gold coins, silver coins, uh, whether they gave me a car. It's how much did that car worth? How much work did I do? How much in U.S. dollar equivalent did I earn? Uh, So that's how I treat Bitcoin, because I I just don't trust the government.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a sentiment that... Well, it's, it's not just in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but in other fields as well. I think there's a lot of heavy-handed regulation where somebody just needs to have a law and they don't really know where to start. Uh that's often reversed and sometimes that happens a few times and I think as a society, it's a hard thing to bear because a lot of people are really interested in being compliant. They don't want to do things wrong, but if things are always moving, how do you know where that line is?
2: Well, the fact that no one really owns Bitcoin, there's no Bitcoin CEO, um, and it's also very slippery. It's not something you can easily get caught uh, with it in your hand. It's easy to conceal that you know a wallet number and uh, maybe you just memorized it, right? So as an analogy of saying that, oh, gold is better than Bitcoin because you can trade it for something if you live in a village. Well, if you live in a village that's poor and your own store is either gold or Bitcoin, I think some thugs running through your village and, you know, digging up the gold, is more likely to happen than being able to find all the little slips of paper with numbers on them or extract uh, how many little numbers people remembered or carved in secret places. You know, one little number is not as heavy as gold or, you know, not detectable. So, what are your thoughts on some of that?
1: <laughs> well, that's pretty self explanatory. That's the unconfiscatable property. What I would rather focus on is when you said Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO. And that is very, very important because Bitcoin is decentralized and trustless. And the word trustless is probably better to be used than the word decentralized. Because right now, everyone is claiming to be decentralized, but they're not. Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO, it doesn't have a company, it doesn't have a corporation. But this is why, to me, Bitcoin is the only fundamental asset worthy of long-term investment. Everything else in the crypto space, to me is a company with a CEO. You know, Ethereum supporters might claim there's no CEO, but we both know who the CEO of Ethereum is. And that's Vitalik Buterin, right? And if it's an ICO, they literally have a CEO on their website. Even something like Zcash is a company. They have a leader. There is the Zcash company. Then there's the Zcash foundation. Zcash claims to be a private currency but it's a privately held company. It's all nonsense to me. Dash and all the rest of them, they're just centralized companies that require trust in people. And any government can just show up, arrest those people, and it's over. I don't see the difference between any of those other projects and eGold, And that takes us to all of these asset-backed cryptos. Well, our crypto is backed by gold. And the first thing I say to them, are you not familiar with eGold? This has been done before. It didn't end very well. Like backing your crypto with a physical asset is a disaster because that asset is at risk of confiscation. So what happens to your digital asset when the physical asset that underlines it is confiscated? Your digital asset was worthless.
2: Yeah yeah it's uh, it's interesting how many examples uh, when you do the study of true decentralization and uh, viral concepts, you know you see parallels in the open source world. I'm a huge open source advocate and uh, the fact that large companies fall to just the sheer openness of a solution that just gets adopted without a ceo and it takes on this organic essence of just existing because people collectively will it to be worth something and valuable just like uh, we all decided by consensus globally that this metal and earth called gold is going to be something that i want to have Uh, The same thing's happening with algorithms and and software. So it's it's an interesting time uh, in the world and people holding on to traditional beliefs of how they're going to ensure longevity for whatever they're currently uh, holding as a company with a CEO. It's quite fleeting as we see history really shortening these cycles you mentioned earlier.
1: By the way, off the record, uh, or maybe leave it on the record if you can sneak it in there. I travel the world all the time. My most uncomfortable experience with airport passport control was Vancouver. And it's really, really frustrating because like the week before, I was flying between US, Russia, Ukraine, other countries that all hate each other at this point. Now, well, not really. I shouldn't use that word. But uh, there is you know, some animosity still between the neighboring countries of Russia. hmm And no problem. No one said anything. Even like you, American, going to Russia, uh, a Russian coming from Russia to America. No one says anything. I fly from New York to Vancouver, they wouldn't let me in the country. What? Almost. And, And it wasn't because of anything. It's not because of my affiliation with crypto. Like, I understand if they had a reason. It's not because they were complaining about certain countries being stamped in my passport. It's because the guy asked me a question. What are you doing here? And my answer was, I had a free weekend. I was going to San Francisco, thought Vancouver would be a good place to spend the weekend before I go down the West Coast. They didn't like my answer. I heard good things about your city, wanted to come and take a look. And it's frustrating because like US and Canada has the longest border in the world. I can walk into your country from a 5,000 mile uh, option here. I'm flying in from New York like... Are you serious?
0: So you recently announced your upcoming conference in Vegas. Could you tell us a little bit about what people can expect, some of the speakers, and what was the motivation behind creating the conference?
1: Yeah, so I've been to so many conferences, and I've noticed what conferences have done right, what conferences have done wrong. And I just wanted to do my own. I wanted to control the content that is on stage educating people. And I chose Vegas as the destination. I wanted to make it a little more fun. And uh, back in the day, I used to play a bunch of poker a long time ago. And I've noticed that so many people in the crypto world are poker players. So I had this idea, hey, let's put together a celebrity poker game, like a really high stakes game, like a one Bitcoin buy-in game for like the crypto celebrities. And then some people said hey, uh, well, what about, you know, if you're not a celebrity? And so I said, fine, we'll have two games. So it's more like a conference and poker tournament just to have some fun. Uh, so there a 100 people, poker tournament, anybody can enter 0.1 Bitcoin, the top three players move on to the celebrity game, which will only have 30 players. I only have about maybe six or seven players so far, but I have till the end of January. Uh, and there will be a full conference day. So Saturday is the full conference day. The celebrity Bitcoin poker game is going to be Friday night. We're going to try and stream that. We'll have everybody mic'd up. And I got a couple of interesting people in that game. I'm going to have Doug Polk play in that game. He's a big former professional poker player, now a YouTuber in both poker world and the crypto space. He's going to play in the poker game as for speakers for the conference. I'm working on that now. Uh, So far, it's basically people that are affiliated with me, Uh, me, Tyler Jenks, which has 40 years of trading experience, Leah Wald, Jimmy Song. There will be a large developer angle to it. We want to try and get at least two panels, maybe three, Uh, one on scaling, one on privacy, uh, just to see where Bitcoin stands and where it's going. Peter Todd just agreed to speak. Giacomo Zucco also agreed to speak. I'm going to reach out to other people. I may or may not have some sponsors. I'm trying to make it self-sustaining. It'll definitely be um, very, uh, since I call everything a scam in this space, uh, this uh, needs to be a conference free of ICOs and all the other nonsense. So it is a conference for the Bitcoin maximalists, but anybody's welcome. I think it'll be interesting in that 100 people poker game, if you have your project to promote, you couldn't think of a better place. You put on the hat of your project, A T-shirt, you sit at a table with other poker players, 10 tables, the better you play, the further you move on, the more you get to pitch your project to other people that are able to come to Vegas and afford a 0.1 Bitcoin poker game with no cash prizes. That will be one of the best networking events for your company if you have a good poker player in that company. Uh, Put them there and maybe people will get interested. So I think it'll be great. And also, uh, we'll be teaching our workshops. I will be teaching my uh, trading workshop, Jimmy Song, his programming workshop, and we'll get a couple others. We'll get a couple of developers. I want to educate people on how to properly store their Bitcoin and Bitcoin security. We'll try and get one of those workshops going. So it's uh, four days. It'll be a day of playing poker, a day and a half of workshops, the celebrity game is a good entertainment, and then an entire day of really valued content Uh, no paid to speak. I didn't know about speakers. Like It's very disappointing that a lot of the speakers you see on stage, you think that they're there because they're knowledgeable and important and educating you. But in reality, the majority of those speakers paid to go on stage so they can sell you your product. And that's unfortunate. So that's definitely not going to happen at this conference.
2: Wow, I'm I'm intrigued as a developer and a poker player. That's great. <laughs> so I played poker for a long, long time, and I remember another conference uh, that a close associate and colleague put on. And in that conference, he had charity poker. Uh, there was a casino at the bottom of the hotel in uh, in Vilnius, uh, Lithuania. So. Yeah, that that really works well. It can get heated too, so just (laughs) watch out. (laughs) uh, (laughs) People don't uh, pull punches.
1: (laughs) I know. Uh, There will be a slight charity angle to it. I'm not looking for it to be insanely profitable. Uh, If it does well, I will be looking to contribute, but not just to charities, uh, more to open source initiatives in the crypto space. So I would love to... Have this conference, let's say, uh, make enough money in reserve where I can sponsor, say, a Bitcoin Core developer. Someone that I feel has uh, the right mental capacity, understanding the needs for privacy, believes in Bitcoin, someone that I believe is not, you know, a government plant to put a bug into Bitcoin. And uh, what incentivizes developers to work on the Bitcoin protocol? I would love to have this conference, sponsor one or two developers where they're free. Uh, I trust in them because they're better programmers than me. My programming days are behind me. My degree in financial engineering used to have me coding, uh, but not anymore. So I would love to sponsor a developer that I respect and trust and say, hey, you don't have to run your decisions by me. You know, Here's your yearly salary. I want you to review other developers' code. Check it for bugs. Uh, check it for back doors. I would love to do that one day. That's how I want to contribute to the space. And if, someday, if a conference like this is profitable enough, that's the end goal. That is my charitable contribution to the open source of the Bitcoin protocol. That's what I would love to do one day.
2: That's great. That sounds uh, really uh, like something I'd like to be involved in. And, uh, and I think you sold me uh, with that poker game too. So yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check it out. It's uh, unconfiscatable.com. It'll reroute you to tonebase.com for now, but hopefully this conference is successful. It'll be a yearly thing. We're going to come up with some, you know, some really cool, I guess, product sponsors. You know, I would love to give away some hardware wallets, some other cool stuff, but it's a lot of work and uh, time moves very fast. So I need to, I need to get on some of those little details. So one thing that we
0: always do on our show is ask if there's any questions you have for our listeners, and uh, if so, how they can reach back to you.
1: Oh, wow. Um, So reaching me is actually not easy because I don't promote, I don't advertise on my YouTube channel anybody's products. I just have an affiliate code section on my website that I just show the screen share of. I don't even have a donation address uh, because I don't really feel like people should be donating If you want to support my work, just use one of my affiliate codes. I think I went with some honorable companies, no MLMs. And um, hey, if you're going to use this product or service anyway, just go through my link and it doesn't cost you anything extra. And that's how you can support my work. Uh, I don't really have the capacity anymore to review a lot of email that people send. And uh, if people want to get their questions answered, Uh, You just got to watch my live YouTube videos and I always leave time for some Q&A and uh, right there in YouTube chat, you can try and ask your question. I usually have someone looking at that chat and picking out the better questions. That's one of the ways that I engage with the audience. But yeah, other than that, I tweet quite often. So follow me on Twitter as ToneVase. Don't really have time for other social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, but I don't have time to use them. So just check out my YouTube, support by watching, and uh, check me out on Twitter.
0: Well, thanks, Tom. We really appreciate your time. And I'm really looking forward to your your conference in January. January 23rd, is
1: it? Uh, 23rd to 26th. The conference itself is on the 26th. The 100-people poker game is on the 23rd with workshops and the celebrity game in between. And of course, there'll be a really cool after party. It is Vegas. Awesome.
2: Thank you uh, so much for your time. Yeah,
1: thank you very much, guys.